musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And can you believe it? I finally made it back to podcast land. It's uh, It's been a long, uh, I guess, eight or ten weeks since we were last together, but after having to move to a new and somewhat smaller place, uh, followed by my computer crashing, which uh, resulted in the loss of uh, quite a bit of unbacked-up material, well, I made it through that all right, but... Then the power switch on my volcano burned out, and a couple of days later, my iolite gave up on me and uh, just wouldn't spark up anymore. So uh, after I had a minor meltdown, I finally got back up to speed and had this program all ready to record a week ago. But uh, when I plugged in my beautiful and very expensive Rode Podcaster microphone, I discovered that there was no longer a driver for it to work with Windows 7, and uh, their tech support wouldn't help, and so uh, it's now a very expensive uh, paperweight. And uh, so I I had to wait for my new mic to arrive, uh, which it just did today. So it is from those depths that the good wishes and support of a whole lot of our fellow saloners uh, floated me back up, and uh, all is well once again. In fact, without the donations of the uh, 27 saloners who bought a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation, and the donations to the salon by a whole bunch of people, Well, without all that help, I I wouldn't be here yet today because it was through their kind donations that I've been able to uh, buy a new microphone and a new computer to replace that rickety house of cards that I had been using. Uh, So here's a great big thank you to those uh, 27 wonderful souls who bought a copy of my book and to the following saloners who made donations to the salon to keep us going. And I should point out uh, that some of these donations, I've uh, taken part of all these donations and passed them on to uh, several other causes that are uh, going on right now. I know the Shulgans need money, Jonathan Ott needs some money, and John Hanna has a real urgent uh, plea out to help a friend of his. So I've uh, taken the liberty of uh, passing some of those uh, donation uh, amounts on to uh, some of the other causes. So thank you all, one and all. And uh, these donors to the salon are... Howard F. And uh, Howard, uh, I'm sorry to uh, say this thank you is so tardy, but the post office lost your letter for a while, and by the time I received it, uh, my enforced hiatus was already underway. So a very late thank you goes out to you. Also, donations have been sent in during the past eight weeks by Rob P., Stuart P., Mark C., Matthew L., Colin F., Miris Limited, I think I said that right, it's M-I-R-A-S-Y-S, Miris Limited, Brian K., Peter N., Chris C., Chris T., and our longtime friend and supporter, Michael M., better known as a dime short. Also, uh, Jeremy S., hey, thank you for that sizable donation, it, uh, it really helped. And in particular, I want to thank John J., whose extremely generous donation pushed the total over the top two weeks ago and allowed me to order this fast new computer, which has uh, finally brought a smile back to my face. So uh, thank you all ever so much, and I'm sure the uh, other people we've uh, passed some of these donations on to thank you as well. You uh, all have been very instrumental in seeing that this circus of interesting ideas will continue meandering along these merry trails for quite some time to come. 
Now, I was going to play a new Terrence McKenna talk for my first podcast after the break, but unfortunately, I hadn't backed up any of the McKenna tapes that I digitized or the talks that our fellow saloners have sent me. So, rather than spend another couple weeks getting that set up again, I was lucky to find a couple of DVDs of Jonathan Ott's talks that uh, John Hanna sent me after his 2004 Mind States conference in Oaxaca, Mexico. Now, when I first watched these videos, uh, I planned on stripping the audio out for a couple of podcasts, but then due to my inattention to detail, they kind of got buried under the other projects that I haven't gotten to either. But since Terrence and Jonathan were such good friends, I thought that it would be appropriate to play one of Jonathan's talks today. The two recordings that John sent me were of Jonathan's talks about mescaline and chocolate, and right now I'm going to play what I like to call the chocolate talk. As you'll hear... He was uh, using a slide projector, but not seeing the slides doesn't seem to diminish this talk too much. Uh, and by the way, the DVD didn't show the slides either. It was uh, just a headshot of Jonathan. Now, when I come back after this talk, I'll tell you about the first time I experienced Jonathan in person. But uh, first, through the good graces of John Hanna, who produced this conference, and thank you very much, John, we'll now join Jonathan Ott on a bright 2004 September day in Oaxaca, Mexico, and learn about the many different ways that cacao has been used by shamans and revelers throughout the centuries. Most of you probably know that cacao come, it came to the old world or the rest of the world through Mesoamerica, even though the plant is uh, of South American origin. Uh, oddly enough, it, it's thought to have been a cross between two wild species of cacao in the Amazon basin something like 10 or 15,000 years ago, or, and it's believed to be an anthropogenic cross, that is a hybrid uh, made intentionally by human beings. Uh, but interestingly enough, that being the case, the first documented cultivation was in Mesoamerica, in the area where we are now, which is most of Mexico and, and part of Central America. Um, and it goes back something like 4,000 years uh, here, and there are pretty good, um, pretty good evidence that cultivation goes back. Uh, the species that we're dealing with is Theodroma cacao, and it's from the family Sterculiaceae. And uh, there are a number of commercial cacaos, but it's strictly a New World uh, genus. Um, and uh, although there are examples of Sterculiaceae from the old world and other genera, and now, of course, it's grown in other areas. Um, the interesting contrast also between South America and Mesoamerica is that until the Spaniards came, until the 16th century, in South America, it was never cultivated for the seeds. It was already uh, in semi-cultivation there at that time. But uh, there it was only cultivated for the, the, the white pulp around the seeds inside the fruits, which I'll show in just a moment. Um, and uh, these are used for making beverages, uh, especially in Brazil. It's very common in street-side juice stands and so forth, the beverage of cupuaçu, which is made from the sweet uh, whitish pulp of um, Theobroma grandiflora. Um, and perhaps of other species. And also here that, uh, that is done in the areas where cacao is grown, but it's not a very big uh, cultivation area in Mexico now. Um, this slide shows the town of Cacahuatan, which is in Chiapas, not far from the Guatemala border. And in fact now, um, as I said, although the Spaniards introduced cacao to the old world from Mesoamerica, 
Uh, it's not a leading cultivator of cacao at the moment. Basically only found in the states of Chiapas and Tabasco, uh, which are adjoining and um, both also adjacent to Oaxaca. And uh, per perhaps spilling over a little bit into Oaxaca and also all through Central America. But the major cultivation now is in the old world, especially in Africa, but it's also grown in Asia. But it's the, the Gold Coast and Ivory Coast of Africa where you see the the maximum cultivation of cacao. It's a very much of a minor item in, uh, in Mexico now. Uh, in the next slide I show a, a section fruit so you can see the purplish fresh seeds and this white pulp that I'm talking about. And so in the preparation of uh, cacao commercially, as I said in South America it was grown for this pulp and so it's simply uh, separated and put into water and it makes a very refreshing juice. And if you go to Brazil, you can get this cupuaçu, uh, which is Theobroma grandiflora uh, pulp drink on the street. I've not seen it in Mexico, but it probably does exist. And in both areas also, this can be fermented to make it an inebriating beverage. And so uh, this also happens. But in fact, during the processing of cacao for the seeds, which was strictly a Mesoamerican uh, practice, and again, the cultivation goes back farther here than it does in the, in the home of the plant in South America, uh, the whole uh, mass is scooped out from the fruits and piled up in heaps. And then that fermentation is allowed to proceed just in a kind of a heap, piled up in, in a special uh, space reserved for this. Uh, and that helps to separate the seeds after a few days of this fermentation. It helps to separate the seeds from the pulp, which is very mucilaginous. And it also is said by enzymatic reactions to enhance the alkaloidal content of the, uh, of the seed, which I will talk about uh, a bit later. Um, next slide, please. And so uh, you can see the cacao beans here after processing, and some of them are going around and you're already munching on them. But in any case, the seeds are cleaned out, the fresh seeds from this uh, uh, fermenting mass. Then they're generally sun-dried and uh, roasted at a fairly low temperature. Um, and for making, and that's what you see here, and they have a husk on the outside, which you're probably picking off of the, of the ones that you are munching on. And so uh, for making fine chocolates, that husk is separated off from the, the inner part, which is called the nib. And, uh, and then this is again after roasting. And then the, it's crushed and usually on stone rollers. And what comes out of that looks like molten chocolate and it is called chocolate liquor. Um, and that chocolate liquor, like if you go to the market here, there are stands that just sell that and you can take a, even a big you know, five gallon tub and get it fill, filled up and it comes out of the machine molten. They usually mix it with granular sugar and cinnamon, and because it's prepared that way here in Mexico to use as a beverage uh, with milk or water. But you can get it just straight also, and then of course it will harden into a block, like you know, very hard, dark chocolate, you know, and it's quite bitter. Um, and so for making uh, chocolate candies, that is the basis of, uh, of chocolate um, bars or chocolate candy, is the chocolate liquor or chocolate mass is another name for it. Um, and generally speaking, with uh, commercial chocolates, um, well, I should backtrack for a second. In the late 19th century, a Dutchman named C.J. van Houten um, developed a process whereby with a, a large press, um, a hydraulic press, he was able to express some of the fat, much of the fat, I should say, from, the, from this cacao liquor or chocolate uh, 
the cacao bean meal to render the product drier and more soluble in milk or water because the fat inhibited the solubility and made it difficult to froth it up into a beverage. On the other hand, the same Van Houten, sometime after that, also developed what is today called the Dutch process for making soluble cocoa, which is a cacao powder. And in this case, the fat is pressed out with this hydraulic press, and then the resulting material is treated with alkaline salts, basic salts, and it results in enhanced mineral content and also better solubility. Now, this device is called a batidor, and the whisk is called a molinillo, or little mill. And this is how it was traditionally solubilized here, although they didn't have milk, it was in water. And the cacao seed, or bean itself, as well as this beverage, was called cacao apu, which means water of cacao, or a potion of cacao. Apu is water, but it also is often used to indicate that it's a potion. And this ingenious device, the molinillo, which is rubbed between the palms to impart a brisk rotary motion, reciprocating rotary motion to the head, it's often carved in points and has removable rings, is a very good device for frothing and mixing things that aren't very soluble. And this is a genuine, fairly old one. I have some even older. Could I have the next slide, please? And this is the origin of that implement, the molinillo. This is a small palm called Camedoria tepejilote, and their common name is tepejilote. And this is very common. I have lots of them on my property. I had for a while a female donkey, and she really loved this plant. I ate like lots of them. So this is the bottom of the stem. It's a very small palm. It's in the Aracaceae, by the way, the group to which the betel nut palm belongs. And then they take it out with the roots and cut the roots down and just leave this part. And so this is the natural implement. And the other ones in the previous slide were like manufactured artifacts for doing the same thing. But again, this is a whisk, and it works very well. So that's the tepejilote. Next slide, please. And you can see, I haven't gone to the market, but this was in 1982 or 1983 that I took this photograph. This is in the marketplace here in Oaxaca. And this is a beverage made that way. She has one of those whisks sticking out of it. And this is called tejate, which is a local version of a cacao potion. And it's this ground cacao with water, sweetened. And then it's whipped up into a froth. And you can see it's quite a foamy froth on top of it. Remember when I showed some of the codices, you would see this froth. But in that case, it was brown to indicate cacao. But this particular potion, tejate, contains a unique ingredient that also enables this frothing to be so dramatic. It's very mucilaginous, and it also helps to make a whipped cream effect. It's a flower. Could I have the next slide called Quararivea funibus? Quararivea funibus. And that's in the Bombacaceae, or the Kapok family, like Seba is the Kapok tree. And I'll say more about those. But first, this is, again, from the Codex Borgia, Mistec, 15th century, from this area, north of here. 
and uh, there's a ceremonial codex. And this is the, the goddess Sochiketsa, which is the female counterpart of Sochipili. She's the princess of flowers, uh, also associated with inebriance, with springtime, with dance, with music, eroticism, all the good things. Um, and so she's sitting on, uh, on this, in a house or on the side of the house, and is clearly sipping one of these cacao potions, because you can see it from the brown froth. And again, you can see that she has this ornamentation, uh, a flower on a headdress. She's the, the princess of flowers, so she gets them. Uh, Quetzal is the name of a, a very beautiful, uh, colorful bird, which is mostly extinct in, in this area. Um, and, and this potion, again, is flavored with flowers, and that's why they depict it with the flowers sticking off. And it may be a compound thing with flower on the one hand and the mushroom on the other, because you can see the little round dot uh, symbol, which perhaps represents mushroom content. And it's often on the, on the jar or the, the cup as well. Um, could I have the next one, please? And when these potions are, are made this way, um, they are called, remember I said with the agave potion, uh, this was one of the vehicles, one of three vehicles for administering inebriating and other medicinal plants. Uh, this other two vehicles being the cacao potion and the, finally tobacco reeds. And I won't talk about uh, tobacco so much at the moment. But, um, in, in the case of the agave potion, straight it's called octli, or now we say pulque, but when it contained these visionary agents, it was called sochi octli, or, or um, uh, the flowery or florid um, pulque, or it's also teoctli, or the wondrous or divine um, pulque. The same is the case with cacao. When it contains these visionary elements, it's called sochi cacao or the florid cacao. So we have Sochi Okli, the Florid Okli, and Sochi Kakawaku, the, um, the, flo the Florid Kakao. Uh, uh, a combination, as I said the other day, seemingly mixed with the Agave potion, which has this stick, which I believe represents um, Acacia Angustissima, uh, the root of which was added and is still called Palo de Pulque. Next, please. And again, I showed uh, both of these the other day, but I just wanted to show again the contrast between the agave potion, which she has in hand, and the pulque stick that she's putting in it, and then another, like, to rub it in. Below, they just show the two elements. And then on the side, by comparison, is the cacao potion. And uh, here is a kind of offering. Um, this is also the, the Nadal Codex, also an East Tech from the 15th century. Next slide, please. So, apropos of these additives, the Tecate potion that I showed, and I'll put another slide in a second, um, from Oaxaca City Market. This contains particularly this flower, um, and someone here has some that can be shown around, which is the flower of Quarari Bea funibus in, in the um, Bambacaceae, the, the Capoc family. And that man, of course, is Richard Evan Schultes. And I had the good fortune when I was researching my chocolate book, the, everything must have been lined up right in the ceremonial calendar because by chance uh, I coincided here in Oaxaca with our first in Mexico City and we came to Oaxaca together with both uh, Richard Evan Schultes and Albert Hofman. And so uh, we came on a brief field trip to look into this Quarry de Funibus because Schultes had written a paper on it in 1958 in the Harvard Botanical Museum leaflets and it also 
interested a man named Frederick Rosengarten from the New York Botanical Garden, who then became a consultant for the McCormick Spice Company. And he also wrote a very good paper in that same journal about this potion Tecate and about Coronary Day of Funerals. There was a little bit of, uh, uh, could I have the next slide? Because I think that shows slightly more close-up view. The leaves are quite big, and they generally hang down like this. You can see this, by the way, if you want, because there are two villages here in the valley where this is grown for economic purposes. One is El Tule, the village, where the big famous tree is, which is a kind of a cypress tree. Um, and the other one is nearby San Andres Guayapan. And many of the families there just live off of this uh, culture. They have uh, one, it's a big, very big, long-lived tree with very hard wood. And the, the Batidor and Molinillo that I showed you before was made out of this wood, um, Guaribeo wood. Um, and the trees are get so big that one of them will cover an entire house and garden plot. And many of the families there basically live from just one of these trees because the dried flowers are worth as much as processed macadamia nuts. And uh, so they simply dry them and sell them. But it's only an item here in the market here. And in fact, it's, it's very strange because it was once a common rainforest tree here in, well, not so strange here in Mexico, but because we don't have any rainforest, this is one of the consequences, this tree has been lost. And here in the valley, it's not part of its natural range, but it was evidently taken here and cultivated here and has survived here as a kind of refugium. I've never seen it in the wild in Mexico, although it's still fairly common in Guatemala. It's called funerous, oddly enough, because the type specimen came from a graveyard where it was also planted in near the Oaxaca Puebla border um, I don't remember the name of the town. Um, could I have the next slide, please? And when Rosengarten became interested in it, without just to show the potion, again, this is the, the frothing result with the stick and everything of the, adding this flower um, dried and ground up. Um, now, the McCormick Company became interested in it because it is a unique spice and it's a very persistent aroma, although the aroma does change with drying, it changes distinctly but it still remains a very unique spice, and everyone's always interested in any new and unusual spice, of course. But the McCormick Company found from a survey that there just wasn't enough of it here. There was perhaps in Guatemala, and that cultivation would take too long, and for various reasons they dropped the project. So it never became commercialized, and it's still a possibility. I've always had in mind, um, and for a while when Dennis McKenna was working for um, um, Aveda in Minneapolis, he uh, hired me as a consultant on what they called the Aztec Chocolate Project, but um, he couldn't sell it to the bean counters of the company. He said, this is a soap company, not a chocolate company, so we don't want a part of it. But the idea was, um, here, Mexico gave chocolate to the world, but they're generally known for pretty lousy chocolates in, in modern times. Um, and, the, and what is called Mexican style here is with cinnamon. And cinnamon, of course, is Asiatic. It was brought by the Spaniards. And so the idea was to make a true Mexican-style chocolate using some of the original seasonings uh, that were added to it. Besides this one, I don't have photos of, but it's another tree um, that's in the Ananaceae, like um, guanabana, uh, like many fruits in the tropics. Um, and this is a Symbopetalum penduloflorum, and it has a very almost woody, dried, when dried, uh, flower pod, um, which is a, also a unique spice. In fact, it smells and tastes very much like black pepper, fresh black pepper, reasonably ground, but it is not piquant. It doesn't have any biting, so it would also be a potentially valuable spice. 
And the idea was to use some of these things into and make a modern um, chocolate, and I may still do that at some point. Uh, I also, some years ago, got correspondence from some, uh, an English couple, um, and they have a company that makes very good chocolates called Green and Black's Organic um, Chocolate. Uh, and they said that they had been in part inspired by my um, cacao book, the, the Ruminations of Non-Batched Chocolate Addict, uh, from 1985, to start this company. Uh, one of the things they have is a, a chocolate that they call Mayan Gold, although oddly enough, the cover art is not Mayan, it's, it's from Teotihuacan. Um, but it's from their own organic-grown cacao from Belize, and it's almost unique for someone else that has a chocolate like this now, in that it's uh, really pure. It doesn't have added cacao butter, it's just a high-fat strain of cacao that's grown organically, and so they just sweeten that and flavor that. And they use allspice as a flavoring, but that uh, made in Guatemala, but not here. That's also another uh, oddball item. I think it's also Asiatic, but I don't know. And I'll, I'll read you a quote from Sagun, which expresses this while we get the slide thing taken care of. Um, this is what Sagun said about the cow. Again, this was uh, in the late, mid to late um, 16th century. This cacao, when much is drunk, when much is consumed, especially that which is green, which is tender, makes one drunk, takes effect on one, makes one dizzy, confuses one, makes one sick, deranges one. When an ordinary amount is drunk, it gladdens one, refreshes one, consoles one, invigorates one. Thus it is said, I take cacao, I wet my lips, I refresh myself. And Sagun had also referred to the flower Cacahuasolchitl, which we now know to be Pororidea funicris, as being um, inebriating in and of itself. He said it takes effect on just like the mushrooms. And so this caused some confusion. People thought, well, maybe fresh green cacao is inebriating. Um, and this has been put to the test by Tim Knapp, uh, a Nahuatl scholar from the University, the National University of Mexico City. Uh, with no particular, uh, not even a very stimulating effect, came from taking large amounts of the, of the unroasted seeds. Um, it was thought that it would be the flowers because of this cacao solchito, but um, the flowers of all fantastic flowers of theobroma cacao, um, and this also didn't give any particularly good inebriating result. And we now know furthermore that, that um, Cacabasolchitl means Pororidea funibris. Um, it refers to the tree, and the flower of that tree is called Poyomatli. And Poyomatli, according to Sagun, Poyomatli may refer to another flower, and there's a little bit of confusion about that, but there's at least one thing that says Poyomatli is um, the flower of Cacabasolchitl or Poirivea funeris. And I mention this because Poyomatli is a, an unknown uh, floral inebriant from uh, this area. And so it could be this flower, although I have taken fairly large amounts of it without getting any particular effect, the Poirivea uh, funeris. And if you make a tea of it, it kind of thickens it up to a sort of gruel that has to be spooned down. But also the the the, the the Nawa cacao potion, cacao well, was also spooned down. It was thick, or it was more like a pudding. 
Um, and so it doesn't seem to be the case. Other candidates for Toyomali are the flower that I just mentioned. It's another cacao additive, Symbopetalum penduliflorum in the Ananaceae. Um, and that's called Teonacastli, which means the sacred ear flower. It looks a little bit like, like an ear, or Sochinacastli. And so the, the name is also suggested. It's near, that hasn't yet been put to the test. Um, and another possibility that's been suggested is magnolia flower, um, uh, a particular magnolia dialbeta from Mesoamerica. And there is this one report from the Northeast of indigenous use of a snuff by the Rappahannock Indians made from magnolia blossom. And so that's also another possible psychoactive. And I mention these because there are still things to be resolved in this pharmacology. There's still work to be done. But we also know that they inserted many other very inebriating, visionary, and theogenic type uh, substances into this cacao potion. And it may well be that Sagoon was not given the full information by his informants when he said this cacao, when much is taken, makes one dizzy, confuses one, makes one drunk. Um, and particularly, there's uh, a, a, a good amount of evidence that the psilocybin mushrooms were added to these cacao potions. Um, this one in particular is Psilocybe cerevesens. I showed another slide of it the other day, which is the Derumbe mushroom, and uh, this was the first one that Maria Sabina um, gave to Gordon Wasser. Actually, he collected it and then she had to officiate. Um, and so the mushrooms uh, is probably not so widely known. They weren't generally eaten here. They were crushed, and the juice was drunk. Um, and this is a fairly common uh, phenomenon. Um, the poetry, for example, speaks often of the liquor of the inebriating mushrooms. And it's not liquor in the sense of alcohol, it's just they would be crushed on a matate. And this has been observed in modern times, although it's also been observed simply to chew down the mushrooms. In the same way that salvia divinorum can be prepared crushed on a matate. And the ololiuki, the morning glory seeds, are also done the same way, crushed on a matate and then made into an aqueous infusion. And uh, could I have the next slide, please? And so. Um, one of the liquors of the inebriating mushrooms was um, Sochi cacao, or a visionary cacao potion, which happened to contain this um, one or another of these mushrooms. This is Salasabi mexicana, uh, which is one of the more common ones, and it's a small, um, in the same subgrouping as uh, Liberty Camp, Salasabi semi-monsieta. Uh, it doesn't particularly blue like cerevesens, as the name suggests. Could I have the next one, please? And this is Salaspi Zapotecori, which is very similar to Cerevesens. Uh, in fact, it's called Derumbes del Agua. It grows on, under, out of water. Uh, where there's, they call them Derumbes because where there's a landslide, these mushrooms grow in the disturbed earth. And then when a, an animal walks across and leaves hoof prints that fill up with water, this fruits out of the water. And in culture, it's only, to my knowledge, been fruited in flooded cultures. It likes the water. And uh, actually, the, uh, that's a very interesting aspect of it. So mushrooms could certainly explain the, the citation of Sargun, uh, because we know that they added the mushrooms to it. And when Gordon Ross was introduced to Maria Savina on the night of uh, 29 through 30 June uh, 15, uh, sorry, 1955, which he subsequently reported on in Life magazine. She served him a cacao potion beforehand. He remembered this association, so it was a sign to him of authenticity and, and tradition. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, also, as is in the case, remember, these are additives that I also mentioned for the um, agave potion. 
and some of them were also put into the tobacco reeds, the three different vehicles. Mushrooms were smoked in these tobacco reeds, but that was very likely Amanita muscari, as I mentioned the other day, which is very active that way. This is Dutturus germonium again. They did add Dutturus as well to, can I have the next slide please, and you can see the close-up. They did add different parts of Dutturus to their cacao potion, usually under the name Tlapapa, but also Nishibu, which is another species, Ceratopraua. And also, I don't have a slide of it, but the genus Salandra, or the gold cup, which is a climbing vine, it's like a cross between a Dutturus and a Brugmansia, but with big, golden, widely open flowers. This is still used by the Huichol, who call it Kieri, and they have two traditions of visionary shamanism, one that's centered on Hikuri, which is peyote, and the other one is centered on Kieri, which is Salandra guttata, but under the name Tecoma Xochitl, which is the cup flower, because Tecomate is cup, like the Toch Tecoma is the rabbit cup, the rabbit vessel for making the agave. So the Salandra is another solanaceous additive, and these, of course, the psilocybin mushrooms would have added psilocin and psilocybin to the brew, and these would have added visionary tropane alkaloids of the scopolamine type. Next one, please. And this is also an important pre-Columbian visionary plant that is unknown as to its active principle. This is in the Composite, and this is in the genus Tegetus, which is commonly called a marigold, and this is Tegetus lucida. In Nahuatl, it's called Yauzi, and this was an important visionary substance. It was also put into the tobacco reeds. It was not, to my knowledge, or it's not recorded, it was added to the agave potion, but it was definitely added also to this cacao potion to make these flower cacaos, or sochi cacao wine. And we don't know the active principle, but it is psychoactive. You can buy this in herb markets, and at least by smoking it, it is psychoactive, and it wasn't known to have been smoked in pre-Columbian times, though. In the markets today, they don't call it yauti, they call it pericon, but that's because that comes from the botanical name hypericon, from some kind of early botanical confusion. Pericon means hyperico, hypericon. And the next slide shows Tegetus erecta, which is in the same genus, and this is a very famous ethnomedicine here, and also ritual flower, which is called Sempoal Solchitl. Can somebody put up the next? This is called Sempoal Solchitl, or in modern Spanish, Sempasuchitl, and this is the flor de muerto. This is the flower for the Day of the Dead, and this is especially found in cemeteries, and it's very important on the altar table when you have the Dia de los Difuntos, the Day of the Defunct Ones. And oddly enough, this has no reputation in modern times for psychoactivity, but it is also psychoactive. I haven't verified this myself, but I know that to this day the mije, which are also in Oaxaca down in the northern part of the isthmus, who are known to be one of, like the Huichol, one of the less Christianized and less acculturated indigenous groups surviving here, still use both of these, and they make infusion of the flowers. And so there again, it's the flower, which is the visionary element, and is added into these potions. But this would also have been added to cacao. 
um, and this is Sempor of Sochitl in, in uh, Nava. Could I have the next one, please? And again, we don't know the active principles of these. It's in the, the sunflower family, Compositi. Um, and there are other tagetas, by the way, that are used uh, ethnomedicinally with suggestive psychoactivity in other areas. So here's another um, subject for bioassay research in natural product chemistry. Uh, this again is that Bolivian Caliandra. Um, but Caliandra, under the name Chilo Sochito, which means um, uh, hair flower or um, filamentous flower, uh, was also used in the cacao potion and was also added to the tobacco reeds um, and as well to the agave potion. So in this case, you see this one in all three of the vehicles. We don't know either what the active principle would have been in particular, at least a couple of different species would have been used here of Caliandra. This is in the leguminosae. Um, and uh, here is additives and as psychotropic substances. They are also, as I mentioned, added to um, ayahuasca potions in, in, uh, in South America um, by the Shuar, who are also called the Hebos. They use probably two different species, uh, Samiki and Chingianta, of which we now know to be Caliandras. Uh, and I was told once by a very capable Shuar um, shaman that it was used in exchange with a leaf to provide a similar effect, which is called um, Diploteris cabrerana in the Montpigiaceae, which is a DMT-containing leaf from the same uh, family as ayahuasca. It used to be called Vanisteriopsis rosbiana. Uh, and so it would make sense because uh, the leguminosae contains a lot of uh, DMT sources that this might be a DMT source for uh, this potion or some active tribute. And so uh, Kalyandra we also have to add to the list. Could I have the next slide, please? And this is, of course, Piper Oratum, or uh, it's known as Acuyo, mostly uh, in Mexico today. We've probably been served this in uh, in the food, either in a green salsa or some kind of dish, because it's a very commonly used seasoning. But this is in the piperaceae. This is a, a true pepper, um, like the black pepper is piper nigrum, and the cava pepper is piper mephisticum, and the betel pepper is piper betel, which is chewed with the, the, the palms uh, nut uh, betel, uh, Rebecca cabbage. But it's not so widely known that this is also a, a shamanic plant and a potentially visionary plant. Uh, a very good source of saffron um, and isosaffron, but mostly saffron. And uh, a friend of mine has bioassayed that and uh, the significant dose, and it is very much of a trip. It's very much of a psychoactive. And it, is, it can also be used as a precursor for making uh, MDA-type compounds. Um, but this is called Mekasochi. In, in Nahuatl, which uh, means the, the cord um, flower. And again, these things, uh, it's, it's prominent here, but these things are called flowers in this context because that means they're the visionary uh, substance. So it's the, and it's the leaf that's used. And this has a, a story and long uh, association with shamanism. There are other pipers, like in South America, that are used as snuffs and substitutes for tobacco or as additives of tobacco. They're also used in uh, dart poisons, um, also used as fish bait. Um, in fact, in Panama, there's even an intriguing report where they would bait crabs, and then they, once they caught the fish, they would fatten them up in a holding pond and feed them on this, and they, they got a pre-seasoned fish fillet because it would absorb enough of the saffron 
Whereas here, they normally wrap the fish in this leaf and, and, uh, and bake it, and sometimes tamal is done that way. Uh, so this is very likely would have been due to the saffron content, why it was put into Sochi Kakawa. Could I have the next one, please? And I put this in because now I want to talk about a little bit about some correspondences with South American uh, shamanism. Uh, there is also an additive to cacao that hasn't been yet documented in Mexico, properly speaking, but in Central America, which is a virola species, and that is virola guatemalensis. And it probably at one time at least grew in Mexico, uh, but it is definitely added to these cacao potions. And by the way, the Quarari Bea flower also is added in cacao potions in Central America. And in South America, Quarari Bay is also associated with cacao. And so I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, and so this virola guanamalensis additive is very interesting because on the one hand, you have virola surinamensis is an additive to different penisteriopsis or ayahuasca type potions, especially in Peru. But um, the virola species, the barks, and uh, all I have is the bark of it in the back there. I don't have any other photo of it in that. Virola bark. That's in the Nandra leaf. And this is tryptamine. That's actually DMT on parsley, and those are standard 100 milligram tryptamine joints for biomassage. <laughs> That's a good dose, by the way, 100 milligrams on parsley. Um, and so uh, this, the virola, though, is a very potent source, not of DMT, but of 5-methoxy-DMT, which is much more potent and, uh, and, for me, more pleasant, more enjoyable, uh, and uh, about five times the potency. So uh, it may be, I've always been looking for tryptamine, short-acting tryptamines in Mesoamerica, because one of the odd things is that uh, the, the Nawa speakers were great experts on this, of about a dozen different categories of chemical, pharmacological categories of visionary substances that we know to be used in world shamanism, speaking in terms of chemical, pharmacological categories. Representatives of about seven or eight of them were here just in this one culture, more than half. Uh, but a, a strong uh, distinction between Mesoamerica and South America is the importance of the short-acting tryptamine in South America, and by the way, it's 5-methoxy DMT and bufotene, not DMT. That's not important in, in any snuff or other plant that we know about. Um, it, more 5-methoxy and bufotene. Uh, bufotene is 5-hydroxy DMT, and 5-methoxy uh, um, is O-methyl bufotene, or 5-methoxy DMT. DMT occurs in this, uh, with many, like in Varroa and also in Atlanta, but generally really low amounts, and it's less potent, so it's not really a significant factor, but everyone's mostly fixated on DMT. So the fact that this, this Virola thing crosses over into the cacao in Mesoamerica was intriguing, and it may uh, represent an introduction of the short-acting tryptamine to this potion. Uh, 5-methoxy-DMT is quite active orally without any um, monoamine oxidase and it just takes a slightly higher dose, uh, but at 30 milligrams and above, it, it's active by itself. And interestingly enough, this virola guatemalensis that's put as an additive to the, the cacao potion is called um, uh, cacao volador. There's a lot of linguistic crossover between these different uh, shamanic plants those that are major vehicles of, uh, of inebriation, those that are additives to those, and those that are ashes, uh, burned to make ashes, they're all the same shamanic plants that figure, because ashes figure in many of these preparations, especially the smells. 
and they all turn out to be shamanic plants, and there's a lot of linguistic crossover. So as I say, this virola, which virolas are usually called uh, generically kumalas in South America, which is a Quechua word, uh, big forest trees, and it's the inner bark, or exudate of the inner bark, that is then processed down to make um, a snuff, which is just a, a blood-red red, um, exudate that comes from heating this bark, which is scraped up and dried in powder. Um, it's also used as dark poison, and in some areas, uh, some cultures of the Waikam, or the so-called Yanomamo type groups, there's no distinction between snuff and dark poison. They just, they don't make the snuff, they, they literally scrape their dark points, which are slivers of bamboo, in this exudate on the standing tree after pulling the bark down, and then they smoke it and they coat it over and over again. And each of these darts can contain as much as 10 milligrams of 5-methoxy-DMT, which uh, is a very good dose uh, snuffed um, and a very good dose inhaling the vapor and sublingually, subcutaneously uh, sub, um, probably also. Uh, and in the next slide I show the way the Waikai used this. Um, and they use a serpatana, which is uh, what we call a blowgun. And uh, these are also shamanic. Uh, it's a, one's a, the, the hunting blowgun is generally uh, that size or, or larger. But these are also made out of virolas, or, uh, out of that family, Maristocaceae, uh, some other shamanic plant. And they are, it's called a taboka this device, and that's where the name, it's a snuff tube, really, and that's where the name for um, tobacco comes from, by linguistic confusion. Uh, and they're generally, as I said, made out of one of these shamanic trees, uh, a virola or an Arianthra species. Um, and so it's, in this case, among the Waika, they're used to blast the snuff into each other's nostrils, this much, you know, two hands full, uh, one at a time. And uh, they do it, this is not shamanic, they do it just for pure entertainment every day uh, when they have it. And uh, the shamans also use it, but what we're seeing here is not shamanic. They do this, and then when they come out of the stupor, they like to do wrestling matches and state mock warfare, and this is what the men do for entertainment. Could I have the next slide, please? And uh, to talk a little bit about uh, some of these uh, South American connections, um, again, with the virola, that virola guatemalensis that is added to cacao is called cacao volador. But on the other hand, you have a couple of South American uh, uh, cacao species that are called virola, they're called kumala. And so, as I say, there's all this linguistic crossover between these. In particular, this one, which I just have the flower, this is Herania breviligulata, which is a wild cacao type species in the Sterculiaceae. And this is an important one because the schwar, the, the hila, also add this to Banisteriasis brew, which they, of course, don't call ayahuasca, they call natem or natema. Um, and so you find this, um, the cacao species also entering into uh, these, the South American Banisteriasis complex. Um, not only that, but the, the, the virola preparations, you have two different kinds. You have the snuff, and one example of that is the first one, by the way, Schultes was the one who quote-unquote discovered this virola snuff, and only in the 1950s. It was, we can find no documentation of this in the colonial records except for possibly as a short-acting dark poison, because now we know that it is a dark poison. And from, from Colombia and Brazil, there are two reports from the 16th century of an inebriating, non-fatal 
dark poison that just knocked people out for a little while, and then they got up with no after effect a little bit later. And so I think that was probably um, probably this uh, virola paste, but we're not sure. And in one of the areas that uh, uh, virola inebriate is called um, kamalampi, um, and that could be kumala ampi. Um, ampi is kudare, dark poison, and kumala is virola. So there's the, it's kind of another mysterious inebriate, this kumalampi, but it very likely is this virola resin. So, uh, but in the Tucano area in southern um, Colombia, where Schultes found this um, this virola resin uh, snuffed, uh, it was called yaqui or yato, and it consisted of 50% of this dried red exudate. It's really blood red, and 50% ashes, and it was the ashes of cacao. Was, uh, in that case, um, it was not herania, but it was Theobroma subincanum, um, the bark, the ash of the bark, 50-50. Um, and then the, some of these groups, especially um, uh, the, in that area, but not related to Tucano, uh, or with one exception, um, like the Bora and Muinani, uh, Witoto, and which is another linguistic group, um, they also make, uh, or apparently did make, a virola inebrian. And this is also another ethnobotanical mystery, because this likewise was discovered by Schultes and only in the 1970s. And in this case, they made little pellets of this resin, and the pellets were always coated in ash. And one of the most important ash sources um, for that was the husk of cacao fruits and, uh, and also uh, the bark of this species to make these little pellets. And it was, they were set in the literature to be uh, for oral ingestion, um, but uh, Dennis McKenna later bioassayed these and didn't find that to be the case. Uh, didn't find them to be active and very toxic uh, to him. Even he analyzed them also, and even ones that contained significant amounts of 5-methoxy-DMT, but not as much as I found to be the sublingual, uh, sorry, the oral threshold. I think they were made for sublingual ingestion, um, these particular pellets, and they coated them in the cacao ash just to make them easy to handle and, and not sticky. The ca these resins are also used in ethnomedicine and like rubbed on the gums. Uh, to cure uh, problems there. Now, there's another example of cacao used in, in, in association with inebriates among the Kuna of Panama, which is also not so acculturated a group. And in this case, they would get together and were, were using tobacco as a primary major shamanic inebriate, and they would get together in a, fair, a pretty well-closed hut and put bundles of tobacco on open fires and, um, and burn it, or alternatively, they would use this tube method and blow the smoke on each other, because these tubes also are sometimes packed with tobacco and then a coal is put in, and then the coal end is put in the mouth of some of the schwarzers too, and then the smoke is blown into or onto a person for various curative purposes and also for inebriation. So while they're blowing each other uh, to bits with this tobacco smoke, they have braziers around, and then they put dried uh, um, cacao beans and also dried chile onto these braziers, and that's really hairy. And so they're they're having the smoke from the chile or capsicum, which contains an alkaloid called capsaicin, um, in the air while they're doing this tobacco ingestion, which goes on sometimes for days. One time in the Mazatec country in uh, 1975, I had this uh, mushroom session with kind of not a real shame, but maybe the son of one who was uh, given to catering to the tourist trade. Um, and, uh, and he, one of the things he did really made my hair stand on end, but he, he was in, 
normally the, the, the mushrooms might be sensed with copal, some kind of a resinous incense, on braises, but this guy did it with pure dried chile seco, dried cacao palms, and so he broke them up and stuffed them on, and, was sent, and not only did he sense the mushrooms, but he hyperventilated the smoke for about a minute, like this, like, and I was choking on the floor with my head, like, it was like I'm opening five bottles of fuming nitrous, you know, nitric acid and ammonium hydroxide and hydrochloric acid, I really couldn't breathe it. But this guy was hyperventilating. This Chile is also a real shamanic even. Um, and so that's another example involving uh, cacao. And so also with the, with the tobacco snuffs, there are many examples of different species um, uh, using the ash from, let's see, uh, the ash from the husks of Theobroma subincanum to mix with tobacco. The snuffs usually have a basic consist consistency uh, chemically basic, and they, they mix ash with them. Uh, Theobroma bicolor uh, is also used, and then there's even a modern mestizo report of, um, from Guyana of some blacks. Um, they're like caboclos, they were called in Brazil. Um, uh, the Guianese that make a tobacco snuff from ordinary cigarettes. They just uh, take it apart and they stick the, you know, the free tobacco in their palms, and then they use the wood, uh, the ash from burning wood of a sterculia, of some uh, tree in this cacao family. And then they do this, and they kind of squeeze out the liquid, and they snuff that. Um, so again, this cacao uh, uh, connection passes over into a more modern form. Then you have the case of the Barola pellets, these uh, mysterious pellets. And it's mysterious because we've never seen the shamanic use of them. Um, Schultes learned this from these Bora and Matoto people that were living in another area from their ancestral area, and they said that their fathers and grandfathers did this, and they knew which trees, no, they knew how to make it, uh, but they didn't know precisely which species were used for it. They'd lost the tradition. So Schultes had them make it from every um, meristicaceous tree, Varolas and other genera, that they could find and then analyze them for tryptamines. But I think they were sublingual pellets or they were made to stick in the nose because snuffs can also be solids or liquids, powders, solids, or vapors. There are four different classes of snuffs. Uh, we also have the you know, ethereal rinds, which are vapors, but there's at least tobacco pellet snuff is known from Brazil where they would make these tobacco pellets and stuff it in the nose. Okay, so in this, uh, there's also tobacco paste which is called Ambida or Ambil. Um, Ambida is called uh, um, in the, by the Witoto in this same area that make these parole paste. And it crosses all the way over Colombia to the northernmost part to a linguistically unrelated group, uh, uh, the Kogi, or the most famous ones. And, and they also make this tobacco paste and have a similar mythology which is just fascinating around it. Um, but they, and they call it by almost the same name. They used to call it um, uh, Ambil or Ambida, the two names. And the, the Witoto also call it Yera. Well, this also has ashes from, in this case, that, that very plant, Herania brevi-ligulata. Um, and the, then they will sometimes carry the ambil, this tobacco paste, which is rubbed on the gums, just like the varola resin, in a cacao gourd. Um, can I have the next slide, please? I guess I'm going to have to move along quickly. Oh, I'll just mention, apropos of the tobacco paste and ayahuasca type brews also, uh, there, it's, it's little known that, that Banisteriopsis is added to snuts and also added to tobacco paste. I think this is much older than the, the, the potions that everyone's so familiar with, 
which, to, and, uh, and the name ayahuasca is clearly co colonial, too clearly post-Columbian. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's a recent phenomenon, maybe even uh, just a few hundred years old, of making these, these composite potions that Luis Eduardo Luna has studied so much. But the Banisteriopsis goes way back in Colombia uh, as additives to tobacco uh, and also to um, these smell plants of different types. Um, and this has been found among various groups. Okay, I just put this here to, to make the, the, the relationship that these cacao potions are rather like um, the Banisteriopsis potion that we, we know not just, I've enumerated a dozen or so of um, presumptive or known visionary plants that are added to the cacao potions, but just a cursory reading of Hernandez or Sagun, you will find many, many others. Um, and so you can see it as a vehicle, an ethnomedicinal vehicle, for administration of many kinds of medicines, not just psychotropic ones, and that's the same thing that what we call ayahuasca is. Many of the ayahuasca groups are not visionary, and they're designed to cure specific diseases. We know about a hundred different uh, plants that are added to those. Um, uh, could I have the next slide, please? And so I, I, I'm going to read a little thing in the end, uh, if you'll permit me, that it summarizes all these connections. It took me um, a, a couple of months and about an ounce and a half of cocaine to get this thing all straight. It was really complicated, and the best thing I can do, and I'll just confuse it if I try to make all these conclusions, but I just wanted to say, apropos of the pharmacology of the count, um, it principally uh, contains xanthine alcohols. Um, and here you see the three principal xanthines, caffeine, which is the trimethyl xanthine, and theophylline and theobromine are, are dimethyl xanthines and are positional isomers of each other. Uh, the next slide, please. Theobromine is really the major component. Caffeine is comparatively minor. It's maybe as much as 10 to 1 difference or 5 to 1 in different cacao products. Theobromine has less of a central stimulating effect and more of a, of a, uh, a cardiac uh, stimulatory effect. Um, and can I have the last slide? What is the name of that book? Cacao and chocolate. What is the verbiage underneath that? It's on the. It is on the um, bibliography. I put some about 50 copies of a brief bibliography back there. It's by a man named Knapp from the 30s. It's a very good book about the. It's called the cacao and chocolate. The cocoa and chocolate. Uh, their history from plantation to consumer by now. Okay, uh, could I have the last slide, please? And I just put this to, in, to show the cacao is love drug, and uh, it was, of course, said to be an aphrodisiacal uh, potion that Moctezuma used when he went to visit his harem. He took especially cacao, uh, but we don't know what seasonings it had in it. But of course, it is very much associated, even among us, as being a love drug. And theobromine has been shown to be a very potent aphrodisiac in hornets, at least. It hasn't been extensively tested uh, in human beings. And of course, um, since I wrote the book, and I have to update this part of it, we now know also that um, we have this particular problem of neurotransmitter. Um, um, arachidonyl ethanol amide, or anandamide, which is the ligand for the THC, to, for a receptor in the brain to which THC binds from cannabis. That also occurs in cacao, probably in sub-psychoactive amounts, but anandamide itself, to my knowledge, has not been assayed, bioassayed for psychoactivity in human beings. And that's another desideratum of this uh, area. It's also, there's talk of phenethylamine in uh, cacao, although that's ambiguous evidence. Um, there, 
there apparently is not as much of it as has been said, but I, I have, there's probably been some work since I uh, wrote this book, and I haven't looked at that. So, but it is presumed by many people to be a potent source of phenethylamine, which has some mood-altering effects. Um, and I'll just mention briefly before reading this that I was told here um, that it's also now known to have monoamine oxidase inhibiting effects, but I haven't actually seen that uh, particular work. So this is from, um, I'll conclude with this, this is from my snuff book, which is called Shamanic Snuffs or Entheogenic Rhymes. It's kind of a limited edition handmade. Um, and actually this was published in John Hanna's um, Entheogen Review. Uh, but it summarizes as the last of a series of vignettes that I wrote to try and make some provocative suggestions about shamanism and also to show all these connections. It's called Cacao Volador, from Amazonia to Asplan. We have seen that two species of Virola and one of Irianthra, a related genus, might be called cacaos in South America. And it comes as no surprise that seeds of Virola guatemalensis, or Cacao Volador, are used for flavoring chocolate potations in Central America. Um, I'll skip over because that's about the origin of the plant. Um, I wish to note some South American linguistic crossovers involving cacaos. Pake many books, including my own. Um, cacao appears not to be of Mayan Mesoamerican derivation, the word cacao, inasmuch as the root is found in Tupi Guarani languages for Theobroma cacao and Theobroma speciosum along with the roots for other cacao terms, such as cupui for tea southern Canaan, cupuasu for tea grandiflorum. Um, the Mesoamerican name for Theobroma bicolor, patashte, or cacauapatlachli in Nahuatl, exists through Central America all the way to Ecuador as patasi in the Rio Nando, although in this latter case it is less clear in which direction this phoneme migrated. Inasmuch as tea cacao is of South American origin and immemorial association with humankind there, logic dictates the Mesoamericans derive their words, cacao from Tupi Guarani and not conversely. We've seen intimate relationships between cacaos as snuff, tobacco, and coca ash sources. I didn't mention the coca part for lack of time. And that both Varola and Eshwibera, another important ash source species, are called cacaos. Significantly, two species of Malpighiaceae, the family of uh, Benisteriopsis, are called Lian cacao, cacao liana in the Caribbean. Two Benisteriopsis species are also named Wilca bejuco, Vilca liana, which associates them with another snuff plant. Um, and Theobromine, uh, sorry, Vilca, while well, a Colombian Piptidinia is known as Chocolatillo. Piptidinia is the presumptive genus of this bufotenine snuff. Some of them are Piptidinias. So one of those is called little chocolate. And Theobromine, in fact, occurs in Piptidinia leptostachia. Quararibea cacao and, and Quararibea cordata, Bombacaceae, bear names relating to cacao in Colombia and Brazil, such as cacao cimarron and cupuasu. This is significant since Quararibea funibus is called cacaoasolchitu, or cacao flower in Mesoamerica. Its aromatic flowers still used as additives to chocolate in Oaxaca. I've noted the importance of lupuna bombacaceae, both as tobacco and ayahuasca plants in Amazonia. In Mesoamerica, Quararibea funibus flowers seasoned both tobacco reeds for smoking and orally ingested cacao potions. And the Central American species, Quararibea fieldii, madre de cacao, 
known as maha and maya, is also still used as spice in chocolate. Furthermore, lupuna blanca, seva pentandra, uh, very important in South American shamanism and in hunting technology, pochocal and nahuatl, was likely, likewise added to cacahuatl in Mesoamerica and probably also to ayahuasca in Peru. Um, Lupuna Blanco uh, was all, and also used in a potion called Chocoyatl, um, whence something derived our word chocolate. This comes from Hernandez, that cho Chocoyatl was um, uh, with cacao. Um, an obscure Shipibo additive to Nishioni, or ayahuasca in Peru, Ispingo, or Ispingu, or Espingo, is probably the seeds of a species of Coraribea, used like Vilca seeds as Peruvian additives to chicha, called Yale, again, relating it to the, the agave potion here. Chicha is another um, uh, fermented drink, which contains many visionary additives. Coraribea putumayensis is a cofan curare plant, fruits of Bombacaceus patinoa ichthyotoxica, a tacuna fish poison, which is commonly called cupuasu rana, false cupuasu, cupuasu being this cacao name uh, for, for grandiflorum in, in Brazil. Um, I've noted that in Mesoamerica, cacao bottle or cacao potions constituted a sort of ayahuasca analog. Like ayahuasca, cacao bottle was an all-purpose pharmacological pharmaceutical vehicle for administration of many medicinal plants, both curative specifics and shamanic inebriants. Besides seeds of pochofu, seva pantandra, flowers of the related Cucuaribea funebris, and seeds of virola guatemalensis, Mesoamerican cacao brews at times contained psilocybin mushrooms, teonanacapul, flowers of solandra, tecomasochitl, or datura, nishitl, tejitis flowers, yaoli and sempuatsochitl, and piper leaves, mecasochitl, all visionary agents as well as some probable entheogens, including flowers of a Caliandra species called Chilosochitl, Symbopetalum penuliflorum, Teonacastli, and Magnolia dialbeta, Elosochitl. The, the epigram introducing this chapter indicates that many such flowers um, were also additives to Acaia tobacco reeds, Oraridea, Piper, Symbopetalum, Tejitis, and some species of visionary mushrooms. But Mesoamericans had still another class of ayahuasca analog, alcoholic chichas, known as balche and mayan and octli and nahuatl, or pulque. In both cases, many visionary additives were involved, but it is significant that the primary and definitive additive in each was leguminous. The mayan methglin, or medicated mead, is named for the balche tree, Lancocarpus violaceus, whose bark was fermented with water and stingless bee honey. By the same token, Mesoamerican fermented okli from sweet saps of agave with okpatli roots, or the okli drug from the leguminous tree Acacia angustissima, and also the roots of Caliandra anama, still called palo de pulque, or pulque tree, in Zapotec. And this was the first Mesoamerican entheogen to be prescribed by the Spaniards by royal decree in 1529, 42 years before the Holy Office of the Inquisition was constituted, and 91 years before the more famous peyote and kindred entheogens were decreed heretical. Balche in the Mayan area and Ocli, Ocpatli in Highland Mesoamerica were clearly the most common everyday working class entheogens at the time of conquest. 
We found that in South America, species of acacia were involved in the Jordama complex, while species of Moncocarpus may be fish poisons and Goudardia additives. Not only did cacao and live shamanic plants spread by trade to Mesoamerica in pre-contact times, but we described strong parallels between Mesoamerican and South American ethnopharmacognosy. In both cases, leguminosae and sterculiaceae, cacao, are central elements. Tobacco is intimately intercalated, intercalated and the bombacaceae, especially Pororibaeus species, are inextricably related to cacaos. Virola is an additive both to ayahuasca and cacao potions, besides being itself a major snuff plant, and we see common additives in other families, including Boraginaceae, Composite, Piperaceae, and Solanaceae. Andean San Pedro cactus has its pharmacognostical equivalent in the Mesoamerican Peyote cactus, both inseparably interrelated with tobacco, like ayahuasca and cacao wattle potions. The last, taken during feasts, accompanied by smoking acaya and tobacco reeds, potions and reeds containing many of the same entheogenic admixtures, mostly having direct parallels in South American snuffs, ipadu coca, and tobacco additives, in each of which cacaos are key. Not only are we faced with a pan-South American complex of shamanic inebriation, but this includes also Mesoamerica in its prodigious pharmacognostical purdue, with roots dating back at least three millennia. Moreover, this shamanic pharmacognosy extends northward via tobacco, pedo, odatura, far into North America, where earliest human uses of the first two likely took place, whereas Amanita muscardia, primal entheogen of Beringian groups, who first migrated into Neogea decades of millennia ago, plates and interweaves the whole with far more archaic roots in Siberia. Thank you. I'll take questions. Yes, please. Um, I was wondering, um, all the things that I've read from South America to Central America up into the Mexican area is that they always fermented some type of corn, hot pepper, and one of these flowers to make a, a beverage um, from cacao. And in doing that in our, in our residence in the States, it's actually got a very extreme uh, psychoactive response in the system. Mm. The spice and the With spice. corn chicha, maize right. chicha. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, for example, in the north, that's pretty common. That's a very restricted practice in Mesoamerica, but it is more north-central Mexico. The chicha, the maize, is much more common in South America, especially the northern part. Um, but this is generally with chewed or malted um, maize kernels, uh, and this is generically called chicha. Of course, it also has many additives, and it's very similar. But for example, where it is used in Mesoamerica, it's called tesguino, and it's uh, mainly by groups like the Parumar or the Huichol. Um, and they also make agave potions, and they use similar additives, one of which is peyote. But I don't know about um, chile as an additive to that. You said they use chile as well. Right, uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's very strong. Ahi. And the frothier it gets, the stronger it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I consider ahi or chile to be a shamanic inebriate, especially after seeing that hair-raising thing in the Mazatec zone with the burning um, chile pots. But it, that's an archaic thing because it's known from the, in other areas, burning chile on open braziers and tobacco also. Yes? I was wondering if you could comment on the presence of tyramine in fermented dried cacao, but not in fresh cacao, fresh fruit, 
and its relationship to problems with ayahuasca or ayahuasca analogs in the sense that tyramine can interfere with the, uh, I believe it's beta-carbolines mm -hmm. in the typical ayahuasca group. Yeah, well, tyramine, I don't have any uh, ready, recent data at hand on tyramine and cacao, though I know it occurs. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I don't think it's a, it, uh, there's been a lot of polemic about this um, serotonin effect and so forth. And I have maintained, and I think um, history has borne me out from the very start, that there's such a fundamental difference between the short-acting, um, comparatively weak, beta uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors that are used in these potions, which are beta-carbolines, like harmine especially, and secondarily harmine, and the ones that are used in medicine. Um, the effect is so fleeting in this case, and much less potent. I don't think that this is a problem at all to have any dietary restrictions. And the dietary restrictions that are associated with ayahuasca in South America are no different from what you would find with mushrooms here, or peyote there, or tobacco there. It's for spiritual reasons. I don't think tyramine is a problem in the case of uh, beta-carbolins, but uh, certainly if people are taking uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors under um, prescription, some of which are irreversible inhibitors, like isocarboxazone, one would want to be careful. And they do recommend not to use chocolate products or anything, uh, theobromine or xanthine contained. Yes? Hello, this is working good. Uh, Jonathan, I have a two-part question. One was, what year did you go to Oaxaca with Dick Schultes and Albert Kaufman to study Parabea Libris? And 82 or 83, about. 82 or 83, okay. Yeah. And uh, the second part is, what is the nature of the psychoactive activity of Pegetti's lucida and Pegetti's erecta? It's like, it's one of the classic marijuana substitutes. You fire up a joint and you get a buzz. Um, <laughs> but it's nothing dramatic. But yeah, I would say, in a way, kind of cannabis-like. It's not salvia de like that's for sure, or tryptamine-like. It's more of a relaxing effect, and, uh, but it is definitely, it's kind of like smoking artemisia leaf. If you smoke Fujian-rich plants, um, and it's very aromatic, it may be some aromatic uh, substance, but this is, even the dry leaves are aromatic, but it has a very strong uh, anise-like smell. Mm -hmm. And so it could be some aromatic compound. Um, and there is a thesis from the 1960s, I think, where they did a bioacid snuffing it, which was unusual, where they chopped up the leaf and so forth, because they did notice the psychoactive uh, um, references to it. And for some reason, they decided to snuff it. Um, it. In the case of, these aren't known as snuffs, and snuffing is not dry snuffing, not widely known in Mesoamerica, just tobacco, and that's hardly only mentioned once. Uh, for, for medicinal purposes. Uh, but there is one report of Itzauyahu, which is Artemisia leaf. That would have been Artemisia mexicana, or it's also called Estafiate or Ajenco, which means like wormwood. Um, that that was powered up and thrown in the face of sacrificial victims. So that it was said supposedly they would become insensitized or whatever, which sounds a little bit like you know, a snuff blown in, but that's the closest we can come to. But that wasn't uh, um, the Tachitas. So these guys tried a basic snuff and they said it irritated like hell and was a great sternutatory or sneezing powder, <laughs> Nispur. But, um, but on the other hand, that they didn't find it to be especially psychoactive. But he did say that a couple of his students did a lot of it, or something like that. He made some comment, like they did, or something, and they seemed to become fond of it. 
So I haven't tried it except I'd smoke it. And I haven't tried the, the Sempov Solchitra at all. Yes? Uh, would, you, uh, would you think there's not really then a problem with people who are taking antidepressants and taking uh, ayahuasca? A lot of people are like demanding. You mean if they're taking monoamine oxidase? No, just, no like uh, serotonin. No, I, no, I, I don't. No, I don't really think that's going to be a major problem. But um, on the other hand, there are a couple of reports that people that take some of those. I don't know if it's from the report for Prozac, but certainly for medicinal monoamine oxidase inhibitors that they become completely insensitized to psilocybin and LSD or they have to take 10 times more to get the same effect. Remember the ayahuasca effect. This is something that's caused a lot of confusion and it still hasn't been dispelled. And I mean that maintained this from the very beginning and was criticized at first by some of my colleagues like Jace Calroy and Dennis McKenna, but they had themselves adduced results that supported this view that um, the ayahuasca effect is strictly peripheral. It's not in the brain. And uh, it's only to get it past or get it absorbed into the bloodstream and prevent the deamination of the compounds in the, in the gut. And in the brain, its effect is negative. It's not an enhancing effect. It's, a, it's an effect that works. It's an anti-DMT effect. Beta-carboline, for example, is a valium-like compound. Um, indeed, there's a receptor that's called the GABA-A receptor. Um, and one of the subunits of that is called the benzodiazepine receptor, where the compounds like diazepam, desmethyldiazepam, all of these benzodiazepines bind. No one has yet found that the anxiolytic or anxiety-releasing or dissolving ligand of that receptor, but two uh, compounds are known to be anxiogenic ligands of that receptor, and one of them is a beta-carboline. We know that that's also a beta-carboline site. And uh, if you take, as I have, very large amounts of beta-carbolines, it's very much like Valium. And if I take Valium, it will knock out even a good dose of LSD. And so uh, there are several reasons you could conjecture. But the MAO, in any case, in the brain is, in, is not in the synapses where you have this receptor site interaction. It's inside the nerve cells for processing it, um, uh, cellular compounds that are outside the vesicles, inside the cells, that's where the MAO is, not in the synapse. And so if you introduce another indole like a beta-carboline, and that gets high enough levels in the brain to where it might be in the synapses, that's going to compete against the tryptamines for access to these receptor sites. Uh, and it's also going to act activate this GABA-A receptor, which is uh, a depolarization receptor. It causes a flood of chloride ions which depolarizes the membrane and turns down its sensitivity by two orders of magnitude or something. And so uh, the general effect, so what you want is you want to take only enough of the beta-carboline and at the same time as the tryptamine to enhance the uptake. In the case of mushrooms, for example, um, if you, some people will take an extract of um, rich in beta-carbolines like pagonum seed with the mushrooms and claim that it enhances the effect. Well, what you're getting there is more absorption, again, in the stomach. So you don't want to be able to feel this in the head because that means there's this inhibitor up there that's going to inhibit the DMT or the 5-methoxy or whatever. And so I went from the ayahuasca analogs. In this snuff book, there's a different technology described because the beta-carbolines are also, uh, the wasca is also used with these snuffs, and I think that's the primordial use. In that case, you do get enhancement. You get double the potency, and you need about uh, 
more than 10 times less of the dose. And yet the dose is so small to enhance the tryptamines in the nose that you can't feel it in your brain. It doesn't build up brain levels there and compete. And so where, for example, 10 milligrams of 5-methoxy-DMT snuffed is very active by itself, if you take 5 milligrams with 5 milligrams of harmine or harmaline, it's the same effect that you get with 10 milligrams, approximately. And this has been verified in other people. So um, it's a, it's, there's still a lot of confusion about this MAO inhibiting thing. And I, again, I don't know about that uh, in relation to cacao, but it wouldn't be surprising. But, and there are these reports with these MAO inhibitors um, that people that have these high blood levels of them from taking them every day in psychiatry just become insensitized. They don't, no one's reported enhanced effects with these things, but often very, very attenuated. Uh, yes, any other? Yeah, back there. Uh, have you ever tried smoking beta carbolines uh, to pre-dose before taking tryptamines? No. No, I, I, I only model things that are like shamanic practices. I don't, I don't know of any practice that would be like that, and so I haven't. Okay. It, I mean, it sounds like based on the, the explanation you're giving that um, it, it, it would in, inhibit the effect. Um, is, that, is that correct? I mean, am I understanding the, your... your a tryptamine-like effect, I would think, yes, but you don't even know, we don't even know if the beta-carbolines survive intact, that kind of process of vaporization. They may even be altered into some other compound. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to say. Okay. Well, I know uh, experientially, uh, I, I know people who, who, who've done that, and uh, smoking, for instance, ground-up Syrian root before smoking DMT. It seems to stretch out the DMT a little bit more. I mean, this is... I know, well, I've heard this kind of thing from many people, but no one's ever given me any kind of hard enough data that had a, even minimal control. So it's not it's kind of a tricky thing to do this in, in a way that you get some useful information. There is very useful information to be got, and I don't mean to uh, deprecate this kind of research. I think it's a very valuable, and there's a, an important place for it, and it's indispensable in this particular field of visionary compounds. But um, in both my ayahuasca book and snuff book, which are kind of like two parts of the same study, I talk quite a bit about how to make this methodology rigorous so that you get information. You want to only use threshold level doses because that's a threshold level for a particular thing which is rare in me, like visual effects. And so that is repeatable, that I can recognize again the next time, whereas if I take double that, how do I know that is that twice that or two and a half times that or it's very vague, but that's kind of a repeatable thing. So if I'm if I establish that 10 milligrams is that visual threshold, and then I get that with five milligrams with this booster, that's something that is more or less reliable. Whereas if I took 20 and that worked, and and but I wasn't looking for the threshold. I first looked for the threshold, something that's a repeatable uh, uh, a signpost, shall we say? But you see what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can talk to the FDA about setting up some controlled studies and, you know. Yeah, well, and I, I now I have published three parts, and there's the four part, fourth part is coming of um, essentially bioassay pharmacology in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, which is like a hippie drug abuseology journal. <laughs> but it is a medical journal, and it is indexed, indexed medicus, and so forth. 
But um, the first one was called Pharmawaska, and it was modeling with pure tryptamines and pure beta-carbolines what I call the ayahuasca effect. Then the second one was with bufotenine, 5-hydroxy-DMD, which I isolated from anadonanthra and compared bioacid anadonanthra snuff, and then the pure compounds with and without tryptamines by different routes, including um, intranasal, sublingual, oral, oral with MEO inhibitors, and interrectal and pulmonary because anadonanthra is also smoked. Um, and then I did the same thing. That second paper is called Pharmanyopo, and then the Pharmapena one is with 5-methoxy-DMT. And the fourth part is on nicotine, um, and I still have yet to complete the, the nicotine bioassays with beta-carbolins, um, but that's sublingual nicotine. And I didn't get any trouble from them on publishing this. In fact, the strangest thing happened when I sent in the Pharmanyopo paper. It was like a hot potato, and they didn't answer me for a long time. They didn't say anything about the Pharmawaska paper, but a couple of years went by, and that was when they were debating that stupid methamphetamine bill that originally had an anti-press provision that didn't make any distinction between commercial and scientific press. So, oddly enough, this never happened to me before. I got two reviews back, and one of them was like three pages and very detailed, and, and, ba and it wasn't critical uh, at all. It really said this is, and it was from some straight pharmacology, so this is important information and, and it's adequate methodology. But they wanted me to add things to it. They usually want you to take stuff out, and this is the first time they'd ever asked me to add like 20% more text to the paper. But they wanted me to justify the ethics of self-experimentation and compare and in human beings and compare and contrast it with animal research. And so I did that, and I think they wanted to cover their ass and also establish some kind of a framework for this. So I would say that's enough. Um, that establishes it well enough. So then I sent them another one, which was an even bigger hot potato, um, and they accepted this uh, with some trepidation. But that's uh, uh, on withdrawal bioassays, where I, um, I have a methodology for completely eliminating physical tolerance and withdrawal syndrome from opiates, uh, which I take all the time anyway. And so n nobody since De Quincey has published withdrawal bioassays. And so there are two case reports where I withdraw from lengthy opioid habits, which were always oral with with known doses so that I have a track record for it and give the withdrawal results of that. And it's the first symptom-free withdrawal that's ever been reported. So that's going to soon be published in the JVD too. So that's also pretty, you know, it's pushing it even farther. And so um, I, th I think it's very important. And I, I, for some time I wrote a column in Spain called the Catholic Psychonautics, Catholic in the sense of, um, of universal. And it was basically about that, really showing the importance, not just historically, but conceptually, of human self-experiments. And, and ethics dictate that the researchers himself do this, as Sasha is also, and Ian also pointed out in, in a very clear and unambiguous and excellent fashion. Okay, one other question? Yeah. The aroma sub in Canaan was something you mentioned. Yeah. The spelling of that, and then another question is, you hear about these wild tobaccos, nicotine rustica, for example, having MAO inhibitors. What is the MAO inhibitor chemical? Uh, it's nicotine, but it's MAOB. Uh, but it's a very significant um, MAOB inhibitor. And, uh, and Banisteriopsis bark, incidentally, this is the first uh, uh, report that we have of that being smoked in, in, in South America, but Sh Schulte's reported that these same Bora and Witoto that have this two 
generation gap between their grandfathers who knew all this stuff and they just kind of remembered or were vague on the details. They said that they, they made splits out of heliconia flowers, which is called, uh, which is a musaceae, like a banana family, famous ornamental flowers. The, the heliconia leaf, they made a split with tobacco and Banisteriopsis uh, um, bark, or would smoke the bark by itself, and some leaf. And by the way, that's another interesting thing about Banisteriopsis, is the leaf, the names refer to the leaf. Um, the etymologies that have been proposed for things like kaaki, yahe, uh, yahe is specifically the name of the leaf in many languages, and uh, and it's very um, clear that the leaves. We only have one analysis, but the leaves are much much more rich in alkaloids than the, the stem bark or the stem is. And uh, there are only a couple of reports of people putting leaves symbolically into the bruise, but at some time the leaves were the important part of the banisteriopsis, and it's gravitated to the stems. It's maybe because of the male-female dichotomy. The leaf additive is the female, and the stem is the male. But, but that's the, the case. And then the spelling for the other... Oh, sorry. Sub, S-U-B-I-N-C-A-N-U-M. Theobroma subincanum. It's an important shamanic one. Yeah. Just a quick question. Um, and have you tried cacao before where you've taken it, the, the purple um, fresh pods out of the white, blended it up in a blender, and just consumed that rich purple drink? No. No, no. It, I would suggest it at some point. I mm -hmm. mean, I've suggested it to many people, but it's very interesting because it's very psychedelic. It makes really? you extremely sensitive. What do you mean that it's very psychedelic? It's very psychedelic in the fact that it sort of puts you in a place where you feel like um, it's it's almost like a um, at the pre LSD where you start to feel like you're being embodied. But it's not going to replace LSD. I'm not saying that. It's always the question. But wait a second. How about those? Like how much? About two cups. Two cups. That's a significant amount. But that's interesting because of this. But it doesn't happen once it's fermented. It's completely gone. It shows all the purple color. Yes. Well, it's a brownish purple afterwards. But yeah, I understand. Yeah, but we used to do it in Costa Rica all the time. I corroborate that as well. It's very psychedelic to eat the seed and fruit. But by saying very psychedelic, you mean it's comparable to mushrooms and peyote and acid because very. It makes you very light. and So it suggests that or gives that kind of it no, it's definitely you get you, know, you, you get colored patterns or absolutely you get oh, okay. strange colored patterns I'm not being stubborn I just wonder if you know no, clear on swinging light sticks there's many trails mm -hmm. if there's any sounds or sensitivity you can also okay well I'll definitely try that let's you go to Takakawatan <laughs> It also very strongly enhances the mushroom experience if you eat the cacao like that. It's more like you can eat it like this, which is traditional ceremonies, mm -hmm. to continue eating fresh cacao or uh, dried cacao throughout the ceremony. Yeah. If you eat the fresh cacao, it's probably five times stronger. You get you get a real strong hit on it. Yeah, and again, one of the major things about putting mushrooms in the cacao potion also is the fact that they're they're crushed and made into juice. Like Maria Sabina was observed to take the whole mushrooms, but she would chew them for a half an hour. I mean, just keep chewing like this. And for example, when people present in hospital with mushroom poisoning, they often evacuate the stomach and so forth, and you can see whole mushrooms, or, or you know, just the pieces, virtually big pieces. They don't digest well. And so you want to um, some blend them in a blender or, or crush them on the top to get the juice out. Or really chew them well, which is very, very hard. It's something like Slavic Cyrillesis, which really elicits a gag reflex. 
um, and is harder to get down even than peyote, although it's not bitter. Um, this also is, is going to greatly increase the bioavailability, as would, I suppose, a monoamine oxidase inhibiting effect, because it's also going to be a substrate for MAO. Okay, well, thanks for your attention. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I guess the first thing I should say is that if you're a chemist or botanist, whether a professional or amateur, and you skipped over this talk because you weren't interested in chocolate, well then uh, you may want to go back and listen to it because there are some very interesting things about little-known psychoactive plants that he pointed out. And if you did hear the entire talk, well, then you know what I mean. Of course, uh, unless you're the most experienced note-taker I've ever encountered, your head is probably buzzing with all of the information that Jonathan just now passed along. Well, he actually passed that along in 2004, but uh, at least it's more widely available now. I can uh, still very clearly remember the first time I heard Jonathan lecture in public. It was uh, at the Entheobotany Conference in Palenque in January of 1999, and he was the first speaker on the schedule that year. Uh, his talk was titled, Pharmacophilia or the Natural Paradises. And the talk was held in the conference room at the top of a long, hard climb up above the Chanka Hotel where we were all staying. And it began right on time at 2 in the afternoon, and the room was filled when Jonathan walked in. He climbed up on the little table in front of the room and began speaking, and there he sat like a Buddha for almost three hours while he spoke without notes, completely blowing us all away. I've met a lot of highly intelligent people in my day, but for sure Jonathan is right at the top of that list. However, uh, <laughs> the truth is that he spoke so fast and threw out so many names of psychedelic plants that I'd never heard of before, and in such rapid succession, that I didn't even try to write down any of them. But I did come away with the knowledge that there are thousands of ways to experience natural highs, and that never again would I worry about finding a good source for my medicine because Mother Nature has seen fit to stock this planet with more entheogens than any one person will ever be able to sample in just one lifetime. Although I would be willing to bet that no one in history has made a better attempt at it than Jonathan Ott. And I do hope that you paid close attention to one of his answers in the Q&A session when he was asked about a certain polydrug combination. He said that he'd never tried it because he only focuses on investigating plant combinations that already have a long history of shamanic usage. So uh, if you also happen to be a psychedelic explorer, I hope you take that to heart. For laymen like me, I must admit that most of this highly detailed information isn't something that I can use, uh, let alone remember. However, uh, should you ever have an opportunity to walk through a forest or even in a city park with uh, Jonathan or Christian Rosh, you will be amazed to discover that in almost every habitable place on the planet you can find a wide range of psychoactive plants, uh, many of which have been used by shaman for quite a long time. It's very reassuring even if you don't plan on taking advantage of that information. However, uh, I did capture a couple of short non-plant quotes from Jonathan's talk in Palenque that year, and uh, I'll read them to you now. There's only three of them, three sentences, actually. <laughs> First one is, When you take drugs, you are setting up hardwired circuits in the network of the brain. 
Now, uh, you might want to think about that for a minute, because uh, I know it makes me wonder if uh, ritual users of psychedelics may have permanently hardwired their brains, uh, or if those circuits will be lost if they aren't used regularly. And by that, I don't mean regular use of the medicine that set up the circuit, but rather the regular thinking about what you learn during the experience. Here's another one of his quotes. It's not the number of brain cells, but the number and complexity of the neural connections that determine intelligence. The brain substrate is plastic, and taking drugs actually changes the number of connectivity types. Then, uh, during a discussion of the possibility of an artificial intelligence waking up in the Internet, Jonathan said, Since electronic processing speed greatly exceeds synaptic processing speed, then perhaps it's only the psychedelic people who will be able to deal with the AI. And with that interesting thought, I think I'll leave it for now. That is, uh, after a couple of announcements. First of all, uh, we're going to begin a little experiment here in the salon. Our working title is called uh, Global Trialogue, and it's a new interactive question-and-answer podcast format in which uh, you pose the questions to current salon speakers, and they do their best to answer. The speaker may uh, also pull in audio from past speakers, such as uh, McKenna, Leary, and so forth, creating a trialogue of sorts. And our first volunteer to test this format, also the volunteer who came up with the idea, (laughs) is uh, regular saloner Bruce Damer. So if you send in your questions via email, Facebook, thegrowreport.com forums, uh, text, or record it in audio and send it to us, well, Bruce will do his best to address it, and uh, then if we select it for good listenability, I'll include your question and the answer in an upcoming salon. Now, my next announcement has to do with the Internet Archive, and I'm pleased to announce that Spirit Plants Radio has become the first new contributor to the Psychedelia Collection at the Internet Archive. And I've also added a link to their site from our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you can uh, get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Or you can get to Spirit Plants Radio directly by entering radio.spiritplants.org that's radio.spiritplants all one word dot org uh, and put that in your browser's address box so uh, if you have objects of a psychedelic nature uh, audio, video, documents, photos or artwork you uh, can contribute this uh, to a large and ongoing collection which uh, by the way contains all the podcasts from the salon along with a huge collection of raw materials all of which are under creative commons licenses So uh, if you get a chance, you might want to check out the Psychedelia Collection by entering the search term Psychedelia, that's P-S-Y-C-H-E-D-E-L-I-A, Psychedelia, at archive.org, or by uh, clicking the link on the Psychedelic Salon Notes page. Also, I want to remind you that April 3rd is the annual Terrence Day celebrations, where we honor the life and work of the Bard McKenna who left the planet on that day in the year 2000. This year we have the uh, potential of having a truly interactive celebration thanks to the hard work of fellow saloner and dope driver Scooby Snacks and his wonderful live Planet London radio show, which is also known as 420 Radio. This show is uh, only two weeks old or so, but uh, it's already featured some really good music and uh, also some good conversation. Uh, For example, two weekends ago, the Dope Fiend and I had our first Skype conversation, and it was on the air with Scooby Snacks, uh, as did Dope Fiend and Iolite Night uh, a couple days ago. Uh, 
Now this show is in its infancy right now, but I've got a feeling that it's going to catch on. And for the next few weeks at least, we'll be meeting at uh, www.justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, justin.tv slash planet London radio, all one word. Now I probably won't be able to uh, tune in for the full five hours every Sunday, but for sure I'll be calling again uh, each week when I can. So join uh, Scooby Snacks, The Dope Fiend, myself, and others whose names you'll recognize from our various podcasts. You know, it's, uh, it's really a good way for those of us who don't have a lot of fellow tribe members nearby to exchange ideas and stay connected. So don't forget, Sunday night in London, Sunday morning in California, and all points in between. We'll be looking for you to join us in cyberdelic space. And uh, that's 7 to midnight uh, London time, uh, noon to 4 California time, and uh, all points in between. You can figure out your own local time from that, I'm sure. Well, this podcast has uh, gone on a lot longer than I, I like to have them go, but it's been so long that I've been away, I, I just couldn't stop talking. I've really missed being with you. But before I go, uh, I do want to mention that during the uh, nine or ten weeks of my forced hiatus, as we all know, the world has turned upside down for many of our fellow slaughters. I know we have a lot of listeners in New Zealand and that they're working through some significant difficulties recovering from recent earthquakes. And then there's been all that flooding in neighboring Australia that has also displaced so many people. And, of course, uh, we're all anxiously watching the revolution spread in the Middle East, where we also have many fellow Saloners. I haven't uh, checked recently, but as of a year ago, there were regular downloads of these podcasts from every country in the Middle East that's currently undergoing a lot of change. So, no matter where you go, you aren't far from someone who thinks like you do. And I hope we can all keep that in mind as these historic events continue to unfold, because we're all in this together, you know. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.